is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Leslie Kane on her career covering UFOs. When you mentioned the word UFO, people generally thought that meant, by definition, an alien spacecraft. It means, you know, aliens are flying a ship. I had to spend so much time just dealing with the nomenclature that it actually doesn't mean that. I think the reason my book made such an impact, because when they people read it, it was like they could no longer deny that this was real. It was really the simple fact, UFOs are real. Now it's accepted within the official world that we have a real phenomenon here. It's accepted that we don't know what they are. And it's accepted that they need to be investigated because they present a national security threat. Leslie Kane, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shane. It's so great to be with you. Yeah, I was really excited to have you on the podcast. I've admired your work for a number of years. Um, Our listeners probably will be most familiar with the body of your work from two really important pieces that you've done. The first is your book, which is titled UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. Uh, This was published in 2010 and was a New York Times bestseller. The other is a really big and important front page New York Times article from December 2017 that you co-authored, uh, essentially revealing a what had been a secret program or office within the Defense Department to research UFOs, or as the government now likes to call them, unidentified aerial phenomena. And we're going to get into all of that. Um, but what I want to start with was um, how you became a journalist, because even though you are most identified publicly now with you know, really objective, high-quality research into sightings of UFOs. This was not always your beat. So start by telling us, how did you become a journalist? Okay, well, I actually started as an activist, and I was very involved with the struggle for democracy in Burma. And I worked with a, a friend who had been a monk in Burma for many years and had been into the war zones and, and knew the country very, very well. I actually went to Burma and spent a couple of months there and, and spent time with Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, did a lot of interviews and kind of, when I came back, uh, I had this, this news about this country that was at that point very inaccessible and not many people knew about the struggle. And I had done these incredible interviews and I got hours and hours of video footage. And so um, I hooked, I I was invited because I knew someone at a public radio station in Berkeley at KPFA Radio, which is part of the Pacifica network. And this was like in the mid nineties. Uh, he invited me to come on a show and just talk about Burma. Um, and it turned out that he was also a print journalist and he was really interested in what I had on Burma because I had so much. And so how I got involved in journalism was this person basically mentored me and taught me journalism. Um, And with this material that I had gotten when I was in Burma, we published stories that, that, you know, were published all over the United States about Burma, including a cover story for the nation magazine, which they nominated for a Polk award. And we did all this reporting together. I was bringing in the information. He was helping get it, into a journalistic form and in that process was teaching me what is involved in writing articles, you know, what are the things Mm -hmm. you have to do and all the things you have to learn to be a journalist. So it was kind of like a hands-on training for me. 
And then I ended up working at this very radio station where this colleague of mine worked, and he was the host and producer of a very popular drive time daily investigative news program. So I eventually started working for that program and was an on-air host and a producer for it. And by doing that, I learned broadcast journalism, which is, you know, a lot of ways very different from right. print journalism. So that was how I got my training. I never did any formal training. I never studied journalism in, 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 you know, in graduate school or anything like that. I just learned by doing it and being coached by people in the field, particularly this one person. And my focus initially was on Burma. And then when I started working at the public radio station, I was covering all kinds of topics with an emphasis on, uh, a, you know, I was very interested in wrongful convictions and the death penalty. And I was just so appalled by what I learned about wrongful conviction, convictions that it sort of became a beat for me on the, at that station, uh, along with, you know, bringing advocates who on who were advocating for the opposing the death penalty, because I was it was a very progressive station. So we had on sure. a lot of opinionated people on that program. So that's that's how I got started in journalism. Did it seem that it did it seem to blend well with your uh, with your activism or your approach to, you know, going out, learning about a story, trying to, you know, right or wrong, alert people to something that was wrong. I mean, journalism has obviously a great tradition of that kind of um, social responsibility journalism and the Pacifica Radio Network in Berkeley. You're kind of like right in ground zero of that kind of work. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, I certainly transitioned from, you know, being a full time activist to being a reporter and they're different. But at KPI, I mean, I always thought of myself as a sort of an advocacy journalist, hmm. a journalist that cares about a topic and is trying to bring information out that will move a cause along, but at the same time providing objective information. I mean, it's not – I'm not putting my opinion in the story, but if I'm talking about human rights violations in Burma uh, and trying to expose how horrific they are, you know, there is an intention behind that, which is to expose this in order to help those people. But, you know, you just basically provide the information in the story. So yeah, I cared a lot about the issues that I covered. I was very passionate about what I was covering. What drew you to Burma in the first place? Well, it was really that I, I was I had been involved with Buddhism. I was very attracted to the, the Buddhism, the, the kind of nonviolent Buddhist aspect of the culture there. And because I had this close friend who had been in the jungles of Burma and and I was just so moved by what he told me about what was going on in Burma. And so I teamed up with him. We founded a nonprofit organization and we actually co-authored a book together called Burma's Revolution of the Spirit. And I was just very moved, as I said, by the the profound nature of the culture and the individuals who who, who were political prisoners for decades there. And they would come out and they would speak out again against the dictatorship. I mean, they were a model of sort of this profound nonviolent opposition to to tyranny and the country represented such a dichotomy between the the darkness of the ruling military you know the, really the junta that had all these horrible prisons and you know they have no freedom as as citizens there and then you but you have this very enlightened uh, kind of spiritually infused government and, and the people were just profoundly dedicated to their cause. 
in a nonviolent way. And it was just something very uh, amazing. It was also a world unto itself. It had really hadn't, and when I was there, it had not had a lot of outside uh, attention. It, it didn't have many people going there and reporting on what was going on. Not, not that many people knew that much about sort of the nature of, of the struggle in Burma. So I was also drawn to that. And, and just going there was a life-changing experience for me. Had you studied Buddhism before that, or did you get exposed to it when you went to Burma? I had studied Buddhism before that. I was actually a practicing Buddhist in my mm. 20s and was very involved with Zen Buddhism. So I that was part of what drew me to it. And of course, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh just died in the past couple of days, you know, really legendary Zen master and a very important Buddhist nonviolent activist. Absolutely. So, you know, it was, yeah, he, uh, he was a, a gorgeous, amazing person yeah. and, um, he did just die. And yeah, so, uh, it's just that, yeah, I mean, the culture there is very infused with the Buddhist perspective and the monks and the monasteries are all part of almost the political fabric of life there. They're very interconnected. Yeah. So you're then you're you're, you're you move from print journalism into broadcast journalism, uh, and you're you're doing this daily radio show. That must have really put you in touch with a lot of people in that community if they were hearing your voice every day. You mean in the community I lived in? You mean <clears throat> yeah, exactly. In, in, yeah. yeah, exactly. It did. Uh, it did, and I was one of three hosts for the show. So usually we each had one segment that we did each day. Um, and it was it was a high pressure job because you have deadlines. You've got to get something on the air that day. And lots of times uh, we would pre-record things. And it's hard to imagine now, Shane, but we were actually recording with physical tape that we would cut on a machine, <laughs> literally right. cut with razor blades and tape it to edit our interviews. Amazing. And one of my, yeah, one isn't of my, that amazing? One of my <laughs> first jobs when I was an intern in college, I interned for a summer with a film production company in Los Angeles, and I was assisting a film editor who was working on an Avid Digital, but there was one day where they were, I was working on basically what was going to be one of the final prints and had to like literally cut film. And it was a, it was a, it was a pretty, uh, pretty uh, um, profound experience in the sense that, you know, you, you, you realize you're physically cutting something and if you screw it up, I guess you can fix it. But <laughs> you realize it's a little, bit of, a little bit more pressure than using the digital technology. That's right. And it's time consuming to fix it. Yeah, very, very time consuming. And I just remember stopping and starting it and then you put the little piece of tape on it and then you listen to make sure right. it's clean. And, you know, so that was, um, so there was a lot of work involved in getting, and sometimes we do live interviews, but uh, we do both. So it was, yeah. it was a, it was a full time, you know, kind of high pressure job, but yes, I did get exposed to a lot of different issues. I learned a lot about, you know, broadcasting just about, how to be a journalist from that. Um, and I learned a lot about what was going on in the world and kind of had to broad, you know, broaden my perspective, just not be so focused on Burma, which was right. very educational. So as you're doing this journalism, uh, you write about this story in your book, and I'll let you tell it to us. You get, you're contacted by a colleague, right, who wants to inform you about this very unusual report that has been issued in France, known as the Cometa Report. Um, tell us the story about what that report was, because it kind of sets you then on the course for where your career goes after that. Yeah, that was a life-changing moment for sure. And what uh, so what happened was I was just uh, received in the mail this manila envelope one day, and I opened it up, and there's this 90-page report, which had been translated into English, my colleague said, you are the first pe person in the United States to have 
an English translation of this report other than the people who translated it, which was, I think, one of the Rockefellers actually translated it. And <laughs> I read this report and it was uh, it was about UFOs. It was called UFOs and Defense. What are we prepared for? And it was a, basically a military study of a lot of official cases around the world uh, put together by a group of very high level retired people from France, including generals and admirals and a, a police chief and uh, a group of scientists. But I was very impressed by the stature of these individuals who put this thing together and spent three years putting it together. And what they so there, there were a number of cases that they described, which were really interesting. But what really got to me about this report was their conclusion. And they said that they thought the best, most rational, most logical and likely hypothesis to explain these objects that they had studied, these anomalous objects, was what they called the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And they were so they were basically saying after having explored all possible explanations for the cases that they featured, which were cases for which there was enough data to rule out conventional explanations, because you don't always have that. So you have to focus on cases where there's a lot of data and, and where officials can get access to it, which civilians often can't. So they had a bunch of these cases and they, they, their conclusion was the best way to explain them is that we are being visited from somewhere else. They could not come up with any other explanation. And they said, of course, this was an hypothesis. They couldn't prove it, but it was written there in black and white. And I, I just was blown away by that. And I thought, you know, these are generals and admirals who are saying this, these aren't, these aren't fools. These people had access to the best cases, the best data. They did all kinds of interviews with pilots and look what they're concluding. And I thought to myself, what if the equivalent stature of officials in America wrote a report and drew that conclusion? It would be, it would be front page news, right? It would be major. So I thought, well, they did this in France. And to me, that was a huge story. And I was completely captivated by it. Uh, I thought, I just felt like this is a scoop, you know, think about what this means. And so and did you have any I, indication from why they had made this report? I, I mean, it's, 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 it's a stunning thing as you describe it. I mean, you, you open it up this manila envelope and here are these highly credible people saying, we think the most likely explanation for these unidentified objects is that they're coming from beyond the planet Earth. But what was the sense of like why they had even documented this in the first place? What were they trying to do with the report? Well, I mean, uh, the, I know that they presented, they wanted to present copies of the report to the government of France, which they did. And their concern was the national security implications of it. Their concern was the aviation safety issues. And they wrote a lot about this. Since these things are flying around our pilots, they need to be trained uh, to, to expect them. They need to be taught how to react in, in events, you know, in situations where they encounter these objects. Uh, they felt them to be potentially dangerous. And so since, you know, the, the General uh, Dennis Letty, who was the one who initiated the report, was somebody who knew something about the topic. He'd had a history with it. He'd had pilots who had reported things to him when he was serving in the military. So the people who put the report together had had a motivation to do it because they, they recognized the importance of this of this issue. And they as I said, their, their focus was sort of the national security questions that it raised. Um, and in that sense, I think they were ahead of their time because that's where we're focused on today. But, 
you know, back then it was like UFOs were considered a joke. They were basically ridiculed everywhere and nobody took them seriously. That's why it was such a shock for me to get this report. It's, it was a different context than the one we have today. But um, I, these, these gentlemen knew that this was a serious issue. They knew it was real and they felt it was important to make that known and to get it to their government. And when someone, when before you had received this report at that point in your life, and this is, I guess, in the early 2000s, late 90s, right, when you get the report? Yeah, it was in 1999. So when some, if somebody had said to you, UFO, at the time, what would you have thought? Well, I would have, I mean, I was curious about UFOs. I don't think I would have dismissed UFOs and laughed like so many people did. I had read a couple of books about UFOs. Um, but they were just, oh, this is, this is interesting. This is kind of curious, but you know, I put the book down and go on with my life. I wasn't like into them or studying them or anything like that. So I, but I was open-minded. I wasn't dismissive. I was a, I was an open-minded person. So before this, I think I would have just been curious and, you know, just open to it, but not, uh, particularly pursuing it. I mean, it never would have occurred to me ever that I would ever cover something like this professionally, that it would come into my life the way it did, you know? And, and if I, it hadn't, I might've read a few books here and there, but that would have been it. And why so. did your friend send this to you? Did he, did he think that you had a particular openness to it or were you just a journalist he knew who had a good audience who might be able to push it out? I think it was both. I mean, he, he had a connection to me and you know, it's funny. I don't remember exactly how we first became connected but um, he knew that I was open-minded. You know, I worked for a progressive station uh, and that I was open-minded. I think that was the reason. And it's such an irony because actually the progressives tend to be, at the time anyway, they were more close-minded to this than the conservatives were. Hmm. But um, I mean, the people at my radio station were not open to it. And did you worry what people at the radio station would think if they found out that you not only had the support, but you started looking into this, right? You started really kind of taking it seriously and investigating it. Yes, because I wanted to write a story on it. And at that point, I had written enough uh, freelance articles with my colleague that I knew a whole lot of editors who had published my work before. In those days, you could write freelance stories pretty easily that would go out on the wire services. So some of our stories on Burma, we just would publish them in various papers and they'd be sent out on wires and picked up. I mean, it's not like that now. So I, I, when I saw this report, I thought I had a scoop. And so, yes, I immediately, but I knew I needed to learn more. I needed to research, <clears throat> you know, is this really a national security issue? I mean, and I started to look more into America, what was going on in the United States so that I have a context for this, for putting together a story about it. Um, and so I did. I spent some months doing that. And the radio station, I remember telling my colleague, uh, who was the one that I worked with on the radio station and had done all the journalism with, he did not take this subject seriously. And so I just was very quiet about it. I went about, I continued doing my job there and I continued researching this to the extent that I had the time to do it and was just very quiet about it. And I, it was this funny thing in those days that you it was almost a shameful thing to be spending time on doing something this silly when people all over the world were starving and dying and fighting wars and all these horrible things were going on that needed attention. You know, yet I was spending my time with this 
crazy subject of UFOs. I mean, that was sort of the attitude. And it was only after, so what happened was I, I published a story in the Boston Globe in May of 2000, which was about six months after I received the report, which was a long piece. It was incredibly well received. And that just changed everything because after that story came out, uh, I had a leg to stand on at the radio station I worked at, KPFA, and they actually invited me to do a, a one-hour show on it, my, you know, on UFOs. It was the first time I'd ever covered it. I mean, so the first time I ever covered it in a broadcast way. So I also did a show for them on UFOs after this Boston Globe story came out. So, uh, you know, that's when everything started to change. But before that, I was just totally private about my interest in it. What do you think about the Boston Globe story made it so well received? Why was it um, not just dismissed? I mean, all those kind of fears that you had about how people would react if they found out you were looking at this report. That's not the reaction that people had to the article once you published it. it they, people took it quite seriously. I think it was the way it was written and the nature of the content of it, because nobody was covering UFOs then. I mean, people did generally didn't read serious stories about UFOs. And so this rep this story included coverage of this Cometa report, quotes from a four-star general in France, you know. Uh, it included documentation, you know, quotes from documents in the American Freedom of Information Act documents that had been released in America. Uh, it, all the information was extremely serious. And I think that's why. Uh, People weren't used to reading an article like that. And the journal, the editor, it was very heavy, heavily edited by the Boston Globe. I mean, that editor was so nervous about publishing this story. Um, so she, you know, it was very conservative in what it said. Um, so I think, and it was long and they included some photographs and it was just not the kind of story you normally would see. And it, it was so seriously focused with such solid information that I think people like I was blown away when I read that report. I think other people, when they read this about the report, also had the same kind of reaction. And you weren't trying to prove the hypothesis, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. You were merely saying, look, this is what these highly credible, very serious people who've worked in the highest reaches of government are saying, right? You just kind of, in a way, sort of reported what they had reported rather than going out and trying to prove that they were right or that they were wrong. Absolutely. I mean, there's absolutely no way you can prove they're extraterrestrial. I would say even today, you can't prove that. Right. So you're absolutely right. It was, I was telling people what these people were saying. And I had some other people in the story from America. I had a, a former Navy commander, for instance, and some others who said similar things. But it was just... Absolutely right. I wasn't trying to make any point or prove anything. I was just sharing the information. And is this where you, you, you first started kind of digging into investigating the question of whether or not American officials or people in the American military had seen or reported similar objects as the people who were writing about this in the Cometa report? Definitely. I mean, I really started looking into it more and more and f found that it was much harder for American military to speak publicly about this than it was in other for, for comparable people in other countries. It was there were a couple of retired people who would speak about it, but active military would not speak about it uh, except off the record. 
And it was, I, I really, that was the point when I really became aware of this incredible stigma that we have in America against this topic. And I learned over the years uh, that it was not the same in other countries. It was not as severe. So I was very motivated to try to break through that because I saw the irrationality of it, that it, it made no sense to me. Uh, There's this factual information. And if people are seeing, you know, strange, you know, or seeing objects that could be a national security threat and they're not supposed to report them and they're not supposed to talk about them. Uh, it didn't make sense to me. So yes, I be and over the years I got to know a lot of people, uh, insiders who would never speak on the record, uh, some military who would speak on the record, but only say certain things. Um, you know, it was a, it was a long journey of discovery for me. I also did a lot of work with, uh, government documents and read hundreds and hundreds of government documents that have been released through the freedom of information act, which were really revealing that, you know, we knew what was going on back in the forties. I mean, we were concerned about this back in the forties and fifties. And, and there were many people within the military at those times during the fifties, forties, fifties, and sixties who believed these were not from here. Uh, and there was an effort made to ridicule the topic back then in order to deal with it. People, the, the government just didn't know what to do about it. So it went way back. There were lots of documents that validated the reality that there was a real phenomenon here and we didn't know what it was. And one of the issues I faced Shane, you know, when I, cause I wrote a series of stories about this and kept on digging deeper and deeper was when you mentioned the word UFO, people generally thought that meant by definition an alien spacecraft. It means, you know, aliens are flying a, a ship. It's that's what a UFO meant to people. And I had to spend so much time just dealing with the nomenclature that it actually doesn't mean that it was a, a term coined by the air force in the fifties. And it means something unidentified in the sky. In other words, something in the sky that we can't explain, but that doesn't mean it's an alien spaceship probably is not an alien spaceship. And so, you know, there was so much to kind of bump up against in the culture because there was so much misunderstanding after decades and decades and decades of, 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 ridicule and government uh, distancing themselves, government not being involved with this topic for so long, conspiracy theories had developed. Uh, and it was just, there was so much that had to be kind of uh, undone, you know, in the culture with people in general. So I, I just sort of took that on myself because I felt, I just felt this was really, really important. And I knew that there was a real phenomenon here, even though I didn't know what it was, but I did know that not every case can be explained away, that there was a genuine mystery here. And the mystery of it is what really fascinated me. You must have had to learn to be exceedingly patient, because I'm imagining that every time you approach this subject with somebody who's, you know, people are rightly skeptical. I mean, I mean, we should be skeptical of, you know, the idea that they're aliens, obviously, but probably, you know, I can imagine someone's eyes rolling back in their heads and thinking, oh boy, here she goes with aliens. I mean, so you must have had to really kind of just prepare yourself for that fact that you were going to have to get over a wall with so many people just in terms of using the term UFO and then immediately thinking little green men. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's just, it was, like you said, people think aliens, and it was never what I was talking about. You know, I wasn't, people even said that after the 2017 New York Times story came out. I mean, people think 
if there's something unidentified in the sky, it means aliens. And yes, so that was a, I always had to, you know, when I did interviews, wrote stories, I always had to address that particular problem um, of, of, of the misidentification, misunderstanding people have. It was a major hurdle. It still is, but yeah, people would roll their eyes and say, oh, aliens. And UFOs do not by definition mean aliens. And I'm Did so you, glad that now we have a different nomenclature. It, it yeah, makes exactly. That UAP odd. actually is better. Yeah. <laughs> we can start over again with a different acronym. I do, mean, I went you, to some meetings over the years where people propose that term way oh, before the government. Yeah, way before the government started to use it. And it just could never you couldn't penetrate through the the UFO word. It just was impossible to replace it. Well, there's a, whole, the, there's a whole term ufology of people who study uh, these things. So it had become so ingrained, hadn't it? Yeah, I never identified with that either. But um, no. I'm just so glad that we have this this other word UAP now, because it does help get us away from the, the whole concept of aliens. Did you find in your research that one reason that this, this, this kind of conflation of UFO and alien persisted was because it was convenient for the military for it to persist. In other words, you know, the Air Force, the military, they're testing experimental aircraft. I think it's been well established that probably many of the sightings that people may have had in the 50s and the 60s, particularly in areas around like Nevada and Area 51, which is so famous, may have in fact been top secret military aircraft and it was easier for the military to let people get spun up on a UFO alien theory than to ask questions about, you know, supersonic jets that they were testing that they didn't want the Soviets to know about. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there has a, there's been some CIA reports that have, have <clears throat> talked about how it was used as like a cover mm-hmm. for secret aircraft and they would be very happy if people thought it was an alien spaceship or whatever, a UFO. So yeah, that that was definitely going on. Um, it's not, but there were still plenty of events that could not be explained as you know aircraft that was being tested. But I don't think that's the whole reason that agencies did not want to get involved with this topic. But uh, that certainly was convenient. It certainly was convenient. I assume that's it still is today. And I find it so interesting that the reaction that you found among American officials was even more reluctance to talk about it than than people maybe in some European officials or elsewhere. What, why did you did you come to any conclusions on why Americans were more reluctant to talk about this? I mean, that is that's a big, big question, you know. Um, we are a, a major superpower, so we have a lot at stake. I one one way to look at it is that we do not want to talk about objects that we can't explain in our skies until we know what they are. I mean, I don't think our government would, would want to come out and acknowledge that our airplanes and our Navy ships and our Navy pilots and are, are encountering objects that could be dangerous and that we have no idea what they are and we can't stop them. I think that's not something they were comfortable revealing to the general public. And so, uh, as they were digging into this and trying to discover more about it, it was just, they just chose to keep it quiet. Initially, it was during the Cold War when the policy sort of came into play where we're just not going to talk about this. And, and part of the argument then was that the Russians might have been able to benefit in some way by, uh, you know, posing, posing as a UFO, sending some kind of ship in and posing as a UFO or disrupting our, our lives in some way that 
you know, we did not want the Russians to think that we were concerned about UFOs at that time. Um, so, and then it just became very ingrained that, that this was not something to talk about. But there were plenty of, of government agencies and government uh individuals who were working behind the scenes, I mean, how could you not? How could you ignore something like this? And there there have been government documents that have shown, there are government documents that show the interest that continued. But um, you know, even today, Shane, I mean, you'd have to ask the US government officials why they're so secret about it. Today, we know that there's a lot of classified information. The, the vast majority of what is known about this phenomenon is classified. And I've been told by people from the DOD or ex-officials or that, you know, this is because we don't want our adversaries to get access to what we know. And if we're trying to discover what this technology is and how it works, whatever progress we make on that, we don't want our adversaries to have that knowledge. And so that's another argument for keeping it secret, uh, just to keep our knowledge private. That's such an interesting kind of <clears throat> uh, twist, I think, on, you know, the, the conspiracy theory, of course, which maybe most famously is in you know, the Will Smith movie Independence Days. You know, you know, we, we know who these people are. They visited before and, you know, we're keeping secret, you know, some there's an alien in a bunker someplace, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're proposing here and what it, and it seems like is a much more feasible uh, uh, theory of the case is that if officials are learning things about these objects, and we should say many of these objects are exhibiting behavior that just kind of defies our understanding of physics. I mean, they're flying faster than anything that we've built. They're maneuvering in ways that, that don't make sense to our understanding of aerodynamics. They don't have any visible sign of propulsion. You know, if, if any government found out even a tiny fraction of information about what that technology was, Absolutely, you would think they would want to keep it secret because they would presumably try to want to either exploit it or, if they had to, learn how to defend against it. Exactly. And this has been the focus of interest in it. As far as the Department of Defense program is concerned, the one we reported on in the New York Times in 2017, their focus was to learn as much as they could about that technology, because this is technology, as you just described, very sophisticated technology that has capabilities that we don't have. And so that was the focus. How, how can, what is that technology? How does it work? And can we duplicate it? And I think that's probably was of interest going way back too. So it's not about, so that, that's the key thing. And I'm, you know, I suspect that there's also a lot that our government doesn't know. They know a lot more than we do. And I say our government, I'm talking about various agencies, but, uh, they don't know everything either. Uh, they just, I don't think they know some anything about where these craft are from, for instance, or whether there are actual beings or, into, you know, whether they're somehow being driven by living creatures, you know, that kind of stuff that we all want to know. I wouldn't be surprised if the officials don't know either. Their focus is on that technology, and I think they do know a lot about the technology. And there, there's also these paranormal aspect to this phenomenon, which is uh, just very strange effects it has on people, which are also being documented. But um, you're absolutely right. It's not about, oh, they have bodies hidden somewhere from crashes and you know they don't want anybody to know. It's really about how do these things work? How do they do what they do?
Talk a little bit about the effects that, that people have reported after, during these sightings. What are some of those physical effects people have reported? Well, there was a defense intelligence agency program that existed for a couple of years before the Department of Defense program that we wrote about, uh, which studied UFOs. This program was studying UFOs in conjunction with all kinds of strange effects that it had and strange manifestations. And uh, there was a book published by uh, called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. I mean, it's very weird stuff. And it's not the kind of stuff I cover, you know, in the sort of mainstream vein that I that I work in. But it is of great interest to me. Um, and there a, a formal official from the DIA was one of the authors of this book. Um, so uh, they've documented, you know, thing. Well, one thing is that people may develop kind of psychic abilities after they have an encounter with a UFO. They may develop kind of clairvoyant abilities or telepathic abilities. I mean, I know it sounds really strange and I generally don't even like to talk about this kind of thing because it's not my focus, but it does happen. Uh, People can also have health effects. If they get too close, there's some kind of radiation that comes out of uh, some of these, these phenomena. And we're talking about a broader range of phenomena now than we are just like metallic discs in the sky. We're talking mm-hmm. about orbs and things that manifest closer to people. And they can develop blood disorders, you know, physical physical problems that, that are studied by medical doctors. And there are studies underway uh, which uh, study exactly this, people who have been impacted by these close encounters. And what's interesting is, is that in the new legislation just passed, which we call the, the Gillibrand amendment to the NDAA, which we can talk about if you want. But one of the things she emphasized in there was that one of the things that's going to be reported now to Congress in the future is research into this very element. So our our government has actually acknowledged the reality of this element of it. And Congress is asking uh, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community to provide them with reports about the physical effects on people. So they're both psychological kind of and physical that, that do happen. And another example of how this has become, I mean, sort of legitimized in a way because now it's being written into legislation. It's not just something that people are merely speculating about. It's something that lawmakers want to spend money to investigate. That's right. There was one report that was released in June of 2021, which was a really important step, uh, which was demanded, asked for by Congress, basically. Um, And then this latest legislation actually passed in December, just last December, uh, as part of the National Defense Authorization Mm -hmm. Act, in which uh, a Congress is requiring that an office be set up to investigate all of this. I mean, it's absolutely legitimate now, Shane, The, the, the world the change began with the 2017 New York Times story and the release of the three videos that a lot of people have seen. Uh, And it was snowballed from there. And Congress has been briefed on this over the years. Senators have been briefed. The Senate Intelligence Committee have had multiple classified briefings. They know a lot more than we do. That's something important to remember. And that has led to this landmark legislation being passed in which um, we're, we're taking this seriously. We're where part of the this uh, legislation also requires that a unclassified report be released to the people of the United States every year 
and it lists the various topics that need to be addressed. And yeah, it is absolutely understood now that this is something real and something that we need to know more about. And we'll, and we'll get to the uh, the 2017 story, but at first I want to talk about your book. And, and I think to, it's important to remind listeners here, too, we talk about the New York Times story, but really, I mean, to give you credit, it's very much your journalism that is the thing that breaks this open. And I think you you were not only getting to this story before other people got there, but you were writing about it in this traditionally journalistic, objective way that was not making leaps in logic. I've heard you describe your approach to writing about UFOs as militantly agnostic, uh, which I think is a great great way to be just as a journalist in general, particularly when you're writing about mysterious subjects. Um, but you write the Boston Globe story, and that comes out uh, after you get this Cometa report. And then you set to work on this book. And tell us why you decided to write a book. And then importantly, how did you go about finding the people who go on the record in this book, because that's what really distinguishes this, is that you, not unlike the Cometa Report, you are quoting accounts from former military officers, from, you know, extremely, you know, well-trained, credible people who have been entrusted with secrets by their government, have been trusted with hardware. These are, you know, these are not just sort of random average people. They are presumably quite sane and <laughs> trained to uh, very accurately describe things that they see. How did you go about not only conceiving of the book, but deciding who you were going to get to talk to and actually then getting them to talk on the record? Yeah, well, thank you for, for bringing that up. I mean, and, and just to say, you mentioned that the very credible people, but they actually contribute their own chapters to my book. So I think that's part of the power of it. I didn't just interview them and tell people what they were saying. I actually invited them to write their own chapters. I think there were maybe 11 or 12 uh, chapters written by uh, four of them were generals from around the world. And, uh, and you know, Air Force pilots and a former American governor and really interesting, highly credible people. So the way it all happened was I spent a number of years reporting on this uh, topic in the media and uh, also got involved with a lawsuit, a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit on this on a particular case and did a lot of stuff. And then in 2007, I co-organized a press conference, a large international press conference at the National Press Club with a colleague named James Fox, and we brought over a panel of people from around the world. That was when I got the idea to write my book, because these extraordinary people who knew a lot about this topic and had their own direct encounters and direct investigations with it were there in this podium, and they spoke for five minutes each. And I got to meet them and got to know them. And I thought, these people have so much more to say. There is no way you can convey what this is about with five-minute statements. And so I, that's where I got the idea. I want to bring them all into a book and present the most credible information that there is in one book. So that's all people have to read to really get it. And um, that's, how I, that's how it all happened. And I was able to get most of them to do it because I already had a track record. I'd been reporting on this for 10 years at that point. I mean, when my book came out, I'd been reporting for 10 years. I started working on it, of course, earlier. But these people you know, were respectful of the reporting that I'd done because no one else was sort of on this topic like I was. And they, uh, they knew me. A lot of them knew me. The ones that didn't respected my my work. And so it really wasn't that hard to get them to be willing to contribute. I had to work closely with a lot of them because just because you're a, a you know, 
an Air Force captain who's encountered a UFO doesn't mean you know how to write, right? So right. <laughs> they wrote their <laughs> That's chapters. That's not their, what they're trained to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I had, it was a lot of work to bring their chapters forward. And I wanted it to be in their own words, which it was. They all wrote them. But some of, they, some of them had to be translated. Some of them, you didn't know how to put a cohesive narrative together. So, you know, I, I helped them a lot. And some of them didn't need any help at all. But it was it was just wonderful to work with these people. Um, and I knew there were a couple who contributed. There was a general from Brazil who I had never met, um, but I knew of his reputation. And, you know, I made sure that he was aboard. He was a, a very well-known brigadier general and had had looked into a whole bunch of cases. But I think just about everyone else I, I had known or spoken to or knew personally in the book. So, yeah, it was a really exciting thing for me to do. And it, it, when it came out, uh, it was a milestone moment for me, just like the New York Times story was in 2017. And, you know, just to reflect back, Shane, what was so interesting, I was thinking about this recently. <clears throat> I basically made four points in my book that were sort of radical at the time. And now all four of those points have been realized. And the points were, the basic point was I was making was that UFOs are real. There is a real physical phenomenon here that we can't explain. Number two, we don't know what they are. They're not necessarily aliens. Although some people think the extraterrestrial hypothesis is valid, like the French generals did who wrote that Cometa report, but it's an hypothesis. We don't know what they are. The third thing is that they present a problem for aviation safety and potentially even national security. You know, they've been involved with nuclear bases, shutting down, just all these things that have happened. So national security is an issue. And therefore, number four, they need to be investigated by science and by governments and taken seriously. And we need to address this issue. And, you know, it was radical then. Even the fact that trying to say that UFOs are a real phenomenon, I think the reason my book made such an impact, because when they people read it, it was like they could no longer deny that this was real. It was really the simple fact, UFOs are real. And um, I remember when the book came out, uh, Michio Kaku, the famous physicist, went on television and said, this book is the closest thing we've got to a smoking gun. Hmm. I was blown away. He said that on television, as he kind of went on to review my book on, on a national TV, on MSNBC. And I did a lot of national TV myself. And it was like, wow, these things are real. And so if you fast forward to and now, where we just passed legislation, now UFOs are real is passe. People, everyone knows that. I mean, it's accepted within the official world that we have a real phenomenon here. It's accepted that we don't know what they are. And it's accepted that they need to be investigated because they pre they present a national security threat. All of those things have been stated publicly by our officials, by our government as being, you know, real and valid. And so it was just, I remember them when the moment hit me, when I was looking back over what my book was really about, and I realized that all the things I was advocating for and all the statements I was making in that book have come to pass. Because I also was advocating for a government agency to be set up. And I did a lot of work on that. With I worked with John Podesta and felt it was really important that we have even just one staff person in the United States government to look into cases when they come up. And I, I had examples of cases that had happened fairly recently 
in which civilians had to take them on, but couldn't get that far. It was just crazy that, that you know, the, the one case, one case being one at an airport that occurred in Chicago O'Hare. So uh, I was out there advocating for this, um, working with some former government officials and so on. And then I discovered in 2017 that there actually was an agency. Um, They'd done what you anyway, wanted them to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the difference was this was a secret agency that only focused on military right. cases. So, you know, it wasn't exactly what I personally had in mind that, you know, not like I should, I know everything, but um, it was just, I feel like what I had been focused on all those years has now come to pass. I guess that's my point. And that's very, extremely satisfying and quite, amazing to me. I don't think I ever really would have expected something, you know, in the last four years, so much has happened so quickly that it's absolutely and I, you know, astonishing. And I, and I think, as, you know, as somebody who's an, a national security journalist and who's, and who's followed your work and who, and who's, again, who was long for much longer than that, been fascinated by UFOs as well. And, and, and very much looked at them as these are phenomena. It doesn't necessarily, we don't know who's driving them or what, if anything. I mean, they could be foreign military aircraft. They could be American aircraft. But it strikes me, you, you've mentioned several times now, the national security implications of UFOs and whether they pose a risk. And what I thought when, you know, well, this is a good lead up to you know, talking about how you broke the New York Times story. When you reported that the Pentagon had been studying these phenomena secretly, to me, it just made all the sense in the world. Of course, they're going to study things that are flying around aircraft carriers, things that are engaging with military fighter jets that they cannot explain. I mean, it just it was just, you know, it would be absurd if the Defense Department were not investigating the national security implications of that. That doesn't mean they have to have any opinions whatsoever about what's behind them, but there are things you know, practically bumping up against very expensive American military hardware. And when the military can't explain what those are, that that's a real concern. That is, by definition, a national security concern, isn't it? Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. It was hard to, to imagine that they wouldn't be. But even though they were, Shane, it was very minimal. I mean, there was pushback within the Department of Defense against them doing that. And they had minimal resources. They weren't funded, these people who were doing this. So, in fact, the reason that the former head of the program resigned in 2017 was just to make that point, that we are not devoting enough resources to dealing with this question. And so, even though you're right, yes, they had to be doing it, they were not doing enough by a long shot. They were not coordinating among various agencies. Everybody had data that they were keeping to themselves. There was no coordination. There were no resources being provided and nobody talked about it. So that's that's what's starting to change now. Yeah. So tell us the story of how you got on to the story that ultimately uh, you and colleagues from the New York Times broke in December 2017. And then we'll get to the videos as well. But how did you first find out that there was this office in the Pentagon that was researching this phenomena? Well, I it was actually told by a colleague who knew about this program. And what happened was I was invited to a meeting in October of 2017. Literally the very day, I believe it was, uh, the former head of the program resigned. His name was Luis Elizondo. And I was invited to a meeting in Washington to meet him. And this is a program that was in the Pentagon, right? Yeah, I mean, it was in the Pentagon. It was under the purview of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. It was basically just 
an underfunded group of people who took this seriously and did whatever they could to investigate military cases. And it was headed up by Luis Elizondo. He was a counterintelligence officer who, of course, had zillions of other responsibilities. This was just something he did when he could. He was originally funded at the beginning. The program was funded, but then the funding ran out. And so they just continued going. I mean, I could give you a, lo a long backstory about it, but since we're focusing on that meeting, I mean, I didn't know much about it when I went to the meeting in October. I didn't know that this program even existed. And I was able to sit across the table for about three hours and talk to Luis Elizondo and learn about this program. And I was shown the videos at that meeting. I was shown documentation, uh, letters from Harry Reid showing how the program was set up. Uh, I was shown Luis Elizondo's memo that he wrote to Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense James Mattis uh, announcing his resignation and why he was resigning. That had not been made public. I mean, none of this stuff had been made public. And the purpose of the meeting was for the possibility of getting this story into the New York Times. Uh, I, at that point, had a colleague and friend who was a freelance reporter for the New York Times who had been on staff there for decades and had then retired and become a freelancer. I had no way of into the New York Times, but my friend did. So they knew that and uh, they wanted to inform me. And I, you know, I was able to talk to Mr. Elizondo and look at all his performance reviews and get a sense of who he was and learn all about the program. And then uh, I went to my colleague, Ralph Blumenthal, who was the one that had worked at the Times for years and years, and and he made a he wrote an email to Dean Baquet, the head editor at the New York Times. We had a meeting with Mark Mazzetti, who was the head of the Investigations Bureau at the Washington Bureau, and in New York, and laid out everything. At that point, I was given the I was given the documents, I was given the videos to take to a meeting with Mark Mazzetti. Laid it all out on the table, sitting in a, in a at a little in the cafeteria at the New York Times building in New York. And he knew we had a story and he knew it and he took it back to Washington. And within a week, we were given the green light on this. And the thing about it was that we had everybody on the record. We had documents, we had videos. We just had a lot of solid information. And at that point, we were uh, assigned a Hel Helene Cooper from who's an outstanding, the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times Bureau in, in Washington was assigned to work with us. And so the three of us worked on the story and that's how it all started. It must have been, I mean, pretty thrilling for you to, to obviously get this information, to then be sitting down with this, you know, incredibly reputable group of, of journalists. I mean, I've, 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 I've known Mark as long as I've been a journalist. I mean, I know Helene, all these people. I mean, these are peers of mine. You must have had a sense that when this thing breaks, this is going to be huge. I mean, or did, or did you? Because I, mean, I remember when the story broke. I mean, I remember where I was and getting the alert and my jaw kind of hit the floor. Did you have a sense that this thing is going to move people unlike anything that you'd ever produced to that point? Yeah, I mean, I knew it would be big, and I probably—I think I knew it would be bigger than anything I'd done before because this was the New York Times, and because of the nature of what we had, it was at another level from any reporting I'd done before. I don't think I knew it would be quite as huge as it was, Shane, but I, I certainly, as somebody who knows the topic, 
I think I knew how explosive it was. I'm not sure that Helene knew quite as much as I did about what a big deal. I mean, I think she was more shocked than I was about the impact of the story. But, um, oh, I was just, it was a a life-changing time for me. I mean, I just could not believe that we had this story and that it was going to be in the New York Times. And I knew it was going to, yeah, I I really did think that it was going to change a lot. Um, I'm still amazed at how much it did change, but I knew it was big. Definitely. I think one. Of, I think one of the reasons why it was so powerful was, of course, because it had video evidence with it. So, talk about the videos. This is the thing that I think probably stunned people the most. So, for people who may not remember who haven't even seen it, describe to us the video evidence that went along with this New York Times story. Okay, uh, so there were two videos. Um, when they're known as gimbal and Fleer, I don't know why that. Those are... I think it refers to the camera, or the technology. Yeah. Exactly. You're right. Yep. And the uh, I think that is the most compelling one. And it shows uh, this object kind of rotating and moving along a bank of clouds, kind of going up at an angle on the screen. And you can hear the voices of the pilots who are observing it, uh, commenting on it, you know, and you can see the object very clearly. Uh, the other one was taken in 2004. And one of the things we did cover in the Times, as well as the program itself, we did a separate piece about the Nimitz incident, a a very famous, now famous event that occurred in 2004, which had been investigated by the the program at the Pentagon. Um, And so one of the videos we we released was from that incident, which shows this sort of um, oblong whitish object, although you see it in both, you see it in infrared and you see it in different, different formats on the screen but it's hovering and then it suddenly just zips off to the side and goes off off camera and you can uh, and that one does not have the pilot's voices on it it's silent but it's doc it was documentation of this incident for which there were many many witnesses and was a very important very evidential event that occurred in 2004 so yeah i mean those videos were viewed by so many people and there's nothing like videos when you're talking about ufos there was a third one that we, that was released uh, in 2019 as well, which is known as Go Fast. And that one does have the pilots exclaiming their amazement when they look at this thing. And, that, and that's one of the really compelling pieces of the the video as well is because these these pilots, I mean, it's it's they're almost giddy. I mean, they're like saying, look at this thing. Look at what it's doing. And, and right. to me, it's always been the most powerful part of it because – you know, the, the the film is coming from the, the cameras on board their aircraft, and these are pilots. These are pilots who are trained to fly and maneuver, you know, supersonic aircraft, and they're looking at this object, and they don't know what this is. They're not saying, oh, yeah, that's a MiG, or, oh, that's another plane from a different squadron. They're saying, what in the hell is that? And that's the part <laughs> right. that kind of makes the stare on your neck stand up. I know, and they're trained to recognize every aircraft in the sky. Right. They know what birds look like, and they they know what an an airplane looks like. You know, some of the debunkers have claimed, "Oh, these are just airport airplanes receding," or these guys know what they're seeing. Yeah, and they go, "Whoa!" You know, look at that thing. You know, oh my God! Yeah, you know, they go on like that. It's rotating. It's rotating. And interestingly. Just a little aside, in that gimbal video, one of them says there's a whole fleet of them. Mm -hmm. And there was a fleet of them. uh, And we were not given the video that the part of the video that includes the other objects. 
the video we were given, we were shown that we were able to release was just part of a longer video. Why so didn't there was you get more the other one? Why didn't you get the part showing the fleet? I believe that part was classified. Wow. So the three videos that have been released were unclassified. They were cleared for, for public release before Elizondo left the program. And someone else brought them out. Uh, but the rest of the video, so they, they, and they were sections of videos. They're, most of the videos that they have, and I know they have many that are far superior to these, they remain classified. And we need to get those released. I mean, that's, there's, you know, the, the, I think that more and more in the next couple of years, we're going to see more information come out. But their, their justification for that is, is just like we were talking earlier. They don't want our adversaries to see references to certain technology that might be on the screen or they don't want them to see what we have, that kind of thing. Do you, do you get the sense that there's something in those videos that gets the U.S. government closer to understanding what these things are or how they operate? Or is it? do you think it's still a mystery? I, I assume they, I assume, I don't know, really, honestly, Shane. I mean, I think videos are among the various things they use to study how these things work. It's a source of data that they have. It's one of the sensors that they have, but they have many others. So I'm sure they must learn from looking at the way the thing moves. And you see, you know, or, and how it's operating on the video. Obviously, they're going to learn from that. But they have many other ways of collecting data, too. Did Elizondo's team or anyone else that you're aware of ever recover any physical evidence? You know, I mean, pieces of a craft or material or anything like that? Well, that has been a very sensitive question. And we actually, uh, Ralph Blumenthal and I actually wrote a story on that question in July 2020 for the New York Times. It was the last story we did in a series of them exploring that question of, of crash recovery, crash retrievals, object retrievals, or materials. And it's... Sources have told us that, yes, we do have such materials, but it's never been something that any official has come out and acknowledged. It's, it's a very sensitive kind of hidden topic. Uh, I think it's highly likely that there are materials that exist and the, that are in the possession of our government or are contracted in the possession of aerospace companies. I mean, that's what people have told me. Uh, they're, they're kind of contracted out and studied by aerospace companies. It's extremely secret, extremely uh, sensitive. And maybe that's something we'll learn more about in the future, too. I mean, there are heroic people like Luis Elizondo and, and Chris Mellon, who works with him, who are trying to get information like that released. And even in the, the recent legislation, it, one of the things she that the legislation requires um, – Con, you know, that these reports are supposed to include information about physical materials or any physical materials that are retrieved uh, by this office that's going to be set up. They're supposed to report on that to Congress in unclassified reports. And maybe that will remain in the classified part of the report. But it is a very sensitive issue. And I do believe that there is evidence there that could be really important. Were there people in the government who wanted you not to publish this or that tried to stop you from reporting on it? No, I've never had that happen. Never. I mean, Which is so fascinating say, to me because, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, almost like, it's, it's almost like people want it to be out there, at least parts of it. Well, there are certainly many officials who do. 
There are many officials who believe more should come out and there are some who believe it shouldn't. So, but, and the ones that believe it shouldn't are not going to go to a, you know, try to clamp down on somebody reporting for the New York times. I mean, that would, that itself would be a story and it would make the stuff, it would heighten the whole thing if they did that. Right. I don't think it would. So in June, 2021, this, uh, no, no, yeah, we, we, then it would, then it would look like they're trying to hide something, wouldn't it? Um, so in June 2021, the Office of the Director of National well, Intelligence, and we've, you've alluded to this, releases this kind of, you know, report. And it's it's not terribly lengthy, and I've written about it and talked about it before. But basically, it's it's saying, okay, here's this sort of set of incidents that we examined, and some of them we think may have plausible explanations, some of them do not. Talk about your reaction to when that report came out and kind of what you think are the most important findings of it. Okay, I was very, I mean, a lot of people were critical of this report because they felt it didn't include enough information, but I was not. I felt it was a very, very significant report and that it did reveal some very important information. It certainly established the fact that this phenomenon is real. I mean, I think that report was when that, that was definitely established. This is something real that we're dealing with here. What I, what I thought was important was that they, mentioned 80 144 cases that had not been solved only one of the one of them had been solved actually but among those 80 of them involved uh, reports with multiple sensors which means they have a lot of data and 80 they have 80 incidences with a lot of data that can't be explained that's very significant uh, the things that really jumped out at me though shane were um sort of buried in there one of them was the statement that they could not confirm that these were objects coming from U.S. classified programs or U.S. technology. They basically were saying these are not ours. Right. And um, even though they, yeah, you know, they could, if they couldn't confirm it, who could? So following this report, you had, it was sort of established that, okay, we've, we've, it's officially acknowledged now that these are not American things. And then secondly, they talked about, um, so there's the question of whether they're Russian and Chinese, which is a really the, the sort of pending question, because if they're not, they're probably not from Earth, right? They've got to be Russian, Chinese, or American. And so they say, actually, I can read you this line right here. Yeah. They say, we, we currently lack data to indicate any UAP are part of a foreign collection program or indicative of a major technological advancement by a potential adversary. So that's not saying we know for a fact 100% that they're not Russian or Chinese, but it's coming close. They're saying they don't have any data that they are Russian or Chinese. And you would think that would be something pretty hard for the Russians or the Chinese to hide if they had developed aircraft that could do these things. And if they had developed them, it seems to me the last thing they might want to do is fly them around next to U.S. aircraft carriers where they could be monitored and we could suck up lots of data about them. It's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I, I can assure you that there are many people working on this who know that. They, they really do know that these are not Russian or Chinese. Right. Uh, it's just a question of when that line is going to be crossed in which that becomes an established fact that is officially acknowledged. It just hasn't quite happened yet, but it's come close. And some of our officials have gone on the record stating, 
I don't, you know, I'm quite sure they're not Russian or Chinese. These are people who have been briefed repeatedly on, in classified briefings who will make statements about that and basically say they couldn't be Russian or Chinese, but they're not saying, I know this as a fact. So that, I think that was a really important component of this report. And, you know, the, the, the importance of these reports is that it also that it stimulates congressional interest. I mean, it's not so much that a report like this needs to be written for the titillation of the general public, although certainly the public has a right to know these things. But what's really important is that it stimulated Congress, it stimulated further briefings, and it led to the legislation that was just passed in December. And, and that it had enough uh, solid information in it to do that, to serve that purpose. And of course, the, the, uh, you know, the people in the intelligence committees were provided with a classified version, an un I mean, a classified version of this. So they had a lot more information than we did. But nonetheless, I believe that what it said was extremely significant and extremely important. We haven't had a statement come out by our government on this topic since the close of Project Blue Book in 1970. So it's been over 50 years since we've had any official document like this that it, it acknowledges the reality of this and gives information about it. So this was a milestone. It was historic. Do you think there'll be a point at which a senior U.S. official or in some kind of public report comes out and, and crosses that line that you're talking about and just says, you know, to the people of America, to the people of the world, look, these are not American craft. We are certain these are not Russian. They are not Chinese. We think that they didn't come from Earth. And therefore, we are concluding that some extraterrestrial craft has visited the Earth. Well, I think they're going to hold off on saying something like that as long as they possibly can. Hmm. Um, and there's really two things that you said. One is they're not Russian or Chinese. Two is that they're extraterrestrial, not from Earth. Those are two different statements. Right. I think we'll get the Russian or Chinese one earlier. We certainly, we've almost gotten it. I mean, Mitt, Mitt Romney went on the record in an interview saying these are not ours. They couldn't possibly be Russian or Chinese. He said both of those things publicly. And, you know, there are, there are more officials that come forward and make these statements. So I think we're moving towards the Russian and Chinese component of that. But I think it, you know, once we've said that, it's a little simplistic to assume that they're extraterrestrials visiting from somewhere else. I mean, it's some kind of phenomenon that is extremely bizarre and we don't know what it is and we may not know what it is. We might just know that it's not something manufactured by any country on earth, but it would probably be left at that. And then of course we want to find out, well, what do we know about it? Uh, where could it be from? What could it be? And, then that kind of information will have to come out. But I think it's going, it's a slow process, relatively slow. I mean, if you look back at the last, you know, from 1945 or whenever, it's been pretty fast in the last four years, been very fast relative to what came before, but it still is a, it has to be a gradual unfolding. And, and, you know, it's possible that there's a desire to gradually acclimate people to this, possibility or this reality, however you want to frame it, because if it was just suddenly 
hand it hand it out to people there could be panic there could be fear there it affects people's religions it's it's got sociological implications it's got all kinds of implications uh and it's not something you want to just dump on people's heads so it's you know i suspect and as i have discussed with some of my sources that there is a sort of a slow unfolding here of um information that and and that's just a good way for it to happen. Um, and I, what I've been told, I mean, Mr. Elizondo recently gave an interview in which he talked about what's what he sees happening in 2022. He's even though he resigned that original government program, he's still very involved. He's an absolute key player in terms of interacting with members of Congress and the senators who are behind the bills and all these things. And he's in the process of setting up these civilian and advisory boards that are going to work with this new office, this new government office. And one of the, uh, they're going to include academics and scientists and all kinds of people. And one of the things they are going to be addressing is uh, things like, you know, how, how, how does this impact society? If, in, you know, how is knowledge about what this actually is? Uh, how does that impact people on a philosophical level, on a sociological level, uh, not just on a national security level, but how does it affect the culture and the people? And they're starting to have those discussions, which I thought, I think is really revealing. Why would they have those discussions if they thought these were just Russian, you know? So right. um, how does it affect theology? Are social institutions, are people going to be afraid? Is the stock market going to be affected? I mean, there's all these things. This is a major paradigm shift for our planet. And so I think there's a careful analysis going on, and, and I think they're handling it really well to kind of look into all these aspects of it and do it in a responsible way. But I think it's eventually going to come out. There's also questions of, I mean, you know, if there's any kind of contact made with whatever this thing is, how do you approach that? You want to be, you know, you don't necessarily want to be aggressive, which is the military's tendency. I mean, one of the one of the quotes, one of the things that Elizondo said recently was sometimes you want to extend a hand rather than a machine gun. That has to be explored. Yeah. Uh, so all these things are happening. They're really happening and they kind of roll out on a gradual level. And I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see more government involvement, more uh, government officials being aware and being briefed on this, more international cooperation. That's another really important element. Our allies coming together on this, sharing information. It's already starting to happen. And um, more people will be coming out about this, more witnesses, people that have had involvement with it in the past, now that it's safer for them to do that. And uh, what are we going to do about it? The big question now is what are we going to do about this situation? It's not about whether they're real anymore. We're beyond that. So that's what has to be addressed. And I think the, the media has made a, a really important shift in that now they everyone wants to cover this and you know when i was working all those years nobody was covering it right. i was the only one basically you know i mean there were people it but you. it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't in the mainstream very often right and now it's like they can't get enough of well, it it's, so it's that's safe for fantastic. us to report on it now that's right there's yeah, no so, stigma so you know, much it, right it, yeah 
Exactly, exactly. Well, and, and I think I mean, to, to your credit again here too, because I mean, you approached the topic with such restraint, and kind of in the same way that the government has approached it with restraint. I mean, to your point about not kind of announcing it to the public and panicking people, but just saying what you know, not saying more than you know, and asking questions and following the questions and following the data. And and I wonder, you know, for for you who's been steeped in this for so long, I mean, here we are talking about kind of getting people acclimated to the idea and possibly even that next step saying, okay, now the government's going to come out and tell you it's not Russian, it's not Chinese. I mean, where are you kind of in that acclimation? And, and do you allow your mind to go to some kind of conclusion or do you resist forming one just because that's, that's how you've always approached this subject? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, at least I've had a head start on this, so I'm not like shocked, you know, the way a lot <laughs> yeah, of people. Yeah, what are we might in think. for, Leslie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, but one thing I've learned over the years, Shane, is that you know, ever since that Cometa report, when it was always about extraterrestrials, if they're not from here, then that means they're visitors from another planet. And I've learned over the years that that's not necessarily what it is. I think it's much more complicated than that. I've learned more about, we were touched on it a little bit earlier, about just the bizarre aspects that the phenomenon has demonstrated. Uh, I think it's it, it could be so many different things. It could be a combination of different things. You know, there may be dimensions of reality that we're not even aware of, that our senses are not capable of perceiving. I mean, these are things that are studied by physicists. They, you know, there could be some kind of interdimensional thing going on here. It's just... You know, it's a whole um, area of study that uh, I think involves our physicists, and that's those are people that are being drawn into this now. Um, it's not so much more, you know, we have a lot of data. It's not so much about collecting more data. It's about understanding what's happening. So the way I see it, I just see it as something way more complicated than I used to think it was. I, I feel that I really do not know what it is, and I'm not saying that just because that's what I'm supposed to say. I really don't. I, I don't think that all these cases and events can be explained by technology from Earth. I mean, I'm, I hesitate to say that, but I think at this point it's safe to say that because um, many people have said that who I respect. Uh, but when you get to the question of therefore what is it, I, my personal perspective is I really don't know. I really don't know what it is. Uh, maybe some of them, some of these objects are visitors from somewhere else. Maybe some of them are something else. Maybe there's a whole dimension of reality we don't even know about yet. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they're time travelers, people that propose that. So I really think it's an open book in terms of explaining them. And that's one way that I've, my perspective has changed over all these years. Uh, the more I learn about this phenomenon, the more I see how complicated and how uh, broad it is in terms of the way it manifests, much more than I used to feel back when I started. And do you find that to be comforting or does the the kind of the mystery upon mystery and the way it compounds like that, does that unsettle you? It's a little unsettling, Shane. I wouldn't really call it comforting because, I mean, what is comforting is that there's been nothing terrible that's happened so mm -hmm. far, although there have been people that have been injured and impacted in ways that aren't positive. But um, what's unsettling to me is how much 
I don't know about it. And from people I talk to who have been briefed at a classified level but cannot obviously share what they've learned, and I wouldn't expect them to, nonetheless, uh, some of them are very kind of frightened and I get a sense from them that this is something kind of ominous and uh, not, you know, it's, there's a, there's a frightening aspect to it. Let's put it that way. Uh, it's obviously something we have no control over. So my concern is really, the part that unsettles me is these classified briefings that other people get access to that involve all this information that we, the people, don't have access to. And those people that do get the briefings, I think, are learning some things that are kind of unsettling that we don't know about. So I'm a little unnerved by it, but the fascination is still there, of course. And, um, you know, so far we've been okay with this, basically. So hopefully... um, it's going to unfold. We're going to be re- learn more and more. And um, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, one of the fears is that the military, uh, but I, I don't think they would do this. But, you know, people have brought this up is the question of um, trying to shoot one down or something, trying to capture right. one of them. You know, wh- what could that lead? That seems to me to be incredibly risky. So I, therefore, I couldn't imagine they would do that. But you just don't know what kind of scenario might occur. Um, so that, you know, it's, I'm a little more unnerved than I used to be, let's put it that way. I find that but so interesting. I, I just yeah. don't know enough. What's that? <laughs> no, I just find it so interesting because I guess I was expecting that you would have arrived more at this kind of place of tranquility about all of it. But <laughs> it sounds like the, it's quite the opposite. It's the other way around. <laughs> the further you go in, the more unnerving <laughs> it actually becomes. Actually, that's right. And I think more information, you know, I've talked to more people who have had more direct experience with it, you know, in recent years than I had before. And I'm more aware of the sort of complexity of the whole thing. Um, but, you know, I, yeah. And also these the, the cases of, of the the um, these sort of drone-like objects that have been buzzing very close to Navy aircraft mm-hmm. and Navy ships, those are recent. We didn't even know about those cases before. So I think since 2017, there's also more information that's come out that sort of shows a, a level of, you know, the, the, the kind of boldness, the audacity of these objects doing what they're doing with our military is something fairly new. That's That kind of activity has increased mm. and the, the reporting on that activity is ongoing. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned people talk about possibly shooting them down, but that what's also fascinating about, well, A, I mean, the, the military's never tried to do that. And I guess, you know, they, they don't perceive them maybe as hostile. They're not firing on us. But to your point, whatever these craft are, are getting extremely close to, you know, aircraft and ships that could could try to harm them. And they, they don't seem to be deterred by that. <laughs> right. And I think in terms of your, your point about, you thought I would be at peace with it. Those are new, those cases have only come to light since 2017. So I've also I've learned a lot more about things about the phenomenon that that are a bit unnerving, like like those cases, which I didn't know about before. I just thought, you know, oh, we have these a couple of times we've had waves of things and we've had one-time events, and they're usually like 
something simple like a, they look like a disc or they look like a triangle but these objects not only are they more threatening but they're they're more bizarre and complicated in their structure and the way they maneuver and all of that so it's sort of i've learned a lot more as everyone else has um but here's you know along these lines one of the one of the items listed in this amendment to this to the ndaa that was passed in december setting up this office one of the things that uh, is supposed to be included in these annual reports to the to the uh, Congress is one of the things listed. I'll, I'll read it to you. It says they want an update on any efforts underway on the ability to capture or exploit discovered unidentified aerial phenomena. And that kind of concerned me when I first read it. I tried Any to find out a little bit more. What's yeah? I've tried to ask you know people, my sources. Well, what does this mean? Have they are they actually capturing things? And I don't. I haven't really been getting gotten any answers on that. I I can't imagine you know. But if they had, they're certainly not telling anybody about it. Uh, but you know, here they are asking for that in black and white openly, and and asking for unclassified reports about these topics. So maybe we're going to learn amazing. more. Yeah, isn't that amazing? It's just amazing to me that that was that was actually written in here, and I would suspect that that would remain classified that kind of information. But it lists a whole lot of th a whole bunch of things that are supposed to be included in unclassified reports. So we'll see what happens. And and do you feel like there's going to be? Is is there for you? I mean, is is there a a moment in which you would say? All right, I feel like my work here is done. Uh, the story has been told, or as far as I can take it, or is this just something that you imagine is just going to just, you know, keep going the rest of your career and then beyond it as well? I kind of imagine it's going to keep going, Shane, because I, I, there's always going to be news to report, news to bring through to the public about this. You know, regardless, I mean, even if we get to a point where they're, it's stated that they're not Russian or Chinese, which I think is could take could take some years to even get there even after that there's all the, the questions of what is it and what's being done to research it I and mean, there's always going to be things to report on so i don't i can't imagine ever losing interest in it or ever getting to a point where we're done i mean at least in my lifetime i don't think we're going to be done unless you did sort of, of get onto the story of a lifetime here yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless a fleet of them land in places all over the United States, you know, or something like that, like you might see in a movie. But, uh, you know, as right. it stands now, I don't think it's ever, I think it's an ongoing story that's going to go on for a long time and a fascinating one, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, our tradition on Chatter is for the final question uh, of our conversation I reach, and you can't see it here, to the uh, the Chatter box, which is an actual box that we keep here in the studio. And I'm going to mm -hmm. reach in here and ask you one of a number of pre-written questions selected at random. Uh, this will be our last uh, uh, question. Uh, this is actually, this is a very good one considering how we, we started the conversation. Uh, if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Uh, to my 20-year-old self? Well, I'm interested in sort of the profound questions that face us as human beings and trying to explore them. Um, and so to be able to 
do that on a professional level with UFOs, of course, is I just feel so fortunate to be able to do that. But I'm also interested in questions about consciousness and, you know, what is our true spiritual nature? Uh, all those kinds of questions, they all kind of intersect with each other. Is there a relationship between the UFO phenomenon and consciousness? And how does it all re relate to spirituality and consciousness? So all of these questions kind of uh, have been of interest to me since I was like 18 or 19. Um, and so, I don't know, in looking back at my search, at my ex exploration of those questions, I kind of see a logic to everything I did. I really don't know what I would say to myself. Uh, so Sounds like I, maybe you could just tell yourself, you might just tell yourself, keep going. Well, that, that may be, and maybe I'm hesitant to say that, but I, I yeah, I might say, <laughs> uh, you know, just stay on that path of, of looking deeply into into life and reality and the meaning of things and the bigger questions. Well, I, for one, am very glad <clears throat> that you did. Um, as a journalist, I respect your work so much. It's just, it's, it's a rare example of what someone can do to overcome um, skepticism, kind of deeply rooted prejudices, insecurities, discomfort by just taking people seriously and not saying more than you know. And I think that in, in, in many ways, in many respects, your, your journalism just stands out as being exemplary just in and of itself, regardless of the subject. But uh, obviously it is, it is deeply complex and fascinating, and it is a true uh, human mystery. And uh, I'm just so grateful that you came on to talk to us about it. So Leslie Kane, thank you so much for your time and for all of the work that you've done and that I know you'll continue doing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Shane. I really appreciate what you just said, and I have great respect for you, so it means a lot to me, and I'm so glad that you find this topic interesting. So thank you I very do. much for having me on. Absolutely. I can't wait to see what you read next, or what you, what you write next. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I'm doing next, Shane, is a five-part series on UFOs. It's going to be on CNN. I'm, I mean, I'm a consulting producer. I'm very involved with that show. I'm not the only person doing it, obviously. But uh, it's coming out this summer, and I've been working on it for quite a while with a film company called Breakthrough Films. And it's going to be, yeah, five episodes on CNN on UFOs. And I think it's going to be really, really good coming out this summer. So I'm excited about that. I am eagerly awaiting that and counting the days until uh, it comes out. So I will be uh, first in line <laughs> to be watching that. I can't wait. And congratulations. That's going to be That's so super. Great. Yeah. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.